Welcome to The War Pod. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Gojo, an independent analyst working for a number of organizations in Brussels. Today, we'll be joined by Jack Watlin from RUSI and Erica Gaston from Global Public Policy Institute. And we will be discussing support relationships, partnerships and proxies. First of all, hello to you both. It's great to have you here. Would you mind introducing yourselves? So my name is Jack Watling. I'm the Research Fellow for Land Warfare at RUSI, and I work in the Military Sciences Department. My name is Erica Gaston. I'm a fellow with the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. It would be great to hear a bit more about the work that you do on these topics, both Erica and Jack. But first, there's quite a lot of terms thrown around when it comes to these sorts of activities. We have proxy warfare, capacity building, and I'm not sure I want to wade into all of those dates about which terminology to use, but it would be good if you could briefly outline the work that you do and explain the terms that you use when undertaking that work. So a lot of the terminology has doctrinal implications and they're about specific methodologies that militaries use, which is why people get very fixated on them. I mean, the terms that I use, and I think the key thing is just to be internally coherent. I talk about partnership relationships and patron relationships when I'm talking about the tactical level. That's essentially because I I think when you're implementing this activity, it is a partnership between two organizations and between two groups of individuals. But the patron side of things reflects the fact that there is a power asymmetry usually. The state is sponsoring the other group. When we're talking about policy level and the decision to engage in a policy where you are working through another group, I think proxy can be a useful term and the practice of proxy warfare can be a useful term because it denotes the intent to implement your policy through someone else. And therefore, you know, it also forces governments to reflect on the question as to whether or not they are actually meeting their objectives through that relationship rather than the relationship just having a life of its own completely detached from what you're trying to achieve through it. But if you start using proxy as a term when you're talking about the tactical relationships, I think you very quickly both misrepresent the nature of how those parties work together and you also tend to offend both parties because no one likes to be described as a proxy. And if you work side by side with somebody in a different military, you don't usually think of them as your proxy. I've never heard the practitioners of this stuff describe it in that way. Yeah, I think Jack's last point is is really important about the perceptions and exactly no one likes to say that they're engaging in proxy warfare and no one likes to be seen as a proxy. I also, it is a loaded term. And it's not one that I prefer, although it certainly is one that comes up and will come up in this conversation. The idea of trying to implement your interests in another country through partners is is certainly on the rise. Just to throw a couple of other labels in there, there tends to be an effort to avoid this proxy label by calling them partners or surrogate. Some of the others that you threw out in terms of capacity building or train, advise and assist. Capacity building is, is an activity that could take place in any number of situations. It can take place within a proxy relationship or a partner relationship or other things that you wouldn't want to describe in either of those terms. It's an activity, but certainly an important part of a lot of these different relationship engagements that we're talking about. Train, advise, and assist tends to be the jargon that Western states apply to these partnerships. It's become almost a term in itself. Congress will fund a train, advise, and assist program and, and understand what that means. But, you know, in a way, that's just another way of representing 
how prominent these sort of practices have become to try and identify a partner in another country to try and work with them, increase their capacity, but also through that funding, through that support, through that engagement, increase the influence or advance objectives in another country. All of these terms are euphemisms for the same thing. It's important to, to understand how people are using them, but also, as Jack said, not to overstate them, not to buy too much into the proxy lens when sometimes there may be other relationships or dynamics that are going on. Just before we get onto the next set of questions, which dive into your work a bit more, it would be great if you could give the elevator pitch. Um, So at Brucey, we do quite a lot of work in three streams. One would be work directly supporting the British Army, so contracted work to the Ministry of Defence and the Army, helping them work out how they do this stuff, along with lots of other things. But this is one of the areas that we work on. The other is what you might call thought leadership, which is essentially primary research. So going out on the ground and conducting studies. And in pursuit of that, we just published a book, myself and my colleague Nick Reynolds, called War by Others Means, which is looking at the kind of past and present of how this is done and where it's worked and where it hasn't. And then the third strand is our convening function. So at RUSI, we run a lot of conferences where we bring together both in private and public forums, very large numbers of officers from all over the world, which gives us a quite unusual degree of oversight of how different countries are approaching these activities, because very often we can meet with the chief of the South Korean military or the head of the Iraqi military or senior US general officers all within the same space of time and have the same conversation with each of them. So I wear a number of different hats, but primarily I engage as a researcher in these countries and trying to distill out policy advice, um, either for governments engaging in this, for host governments themselves, or for the communities. So I work for Global Public Policy Institute as a fellow, led a three-year research project looking at the role and impact of local sub-state and hybrid forces in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. I also, separate from that, I completed a year-long study for the New America Foundation on U.S.-Iran proxy competition in Iraq. For that, we were equally interviewing as many as we could from different sides to analyze you know, what was going on with this proxy competition. Was it actually a form of proxy warfare? Were there other important balances to be paying attention to? And I think the importance for our discussion later is that it found as many examples of proxy competition happening between Iraqi actors, so between one force and smaller groups in the country, as between external actors. So that's another way to kind of broaden the definition of how we think about proxy competition or proxy warfare. And then thirdly, I'm completing my dissertation at the University of Cambridge. And in that, I look specifically at where Western states are trying to engage with some of these non-state or quasi-state or sub-state actors, however they're defined and there are many names for them. How do they try and and have some measure of control, particularly for some of the accountability issues that Western states often demand? So how do they ensure that forces that they are funding don't commit human rights abuses? How do they ensure that they are not inadvertently funneling arms to terrorists or themselves going to become terrorists. This has been an area that as more Western states have had to de facto or very proactively want to engage with these types of forces that has come to the fore more recently. How do you not only partner with different types of forces who might be perceived as more risky on any number of reasons, but how do you try and mitigate those risks? Is that even possible? So that's a lot of what my research is about. Thank you for clarifying. I think we can delve a bit deeper now into your research and your analysis. It would be good to hear from you both what risks and what challenges you find with proxy and partner relationships. Risks really depend upon what the policy objectives are. 
And one of the biggest problems with this is that it is marketed by militaries to their governments as war on the cheap. Um, the idea that you can put in a very limited investment and get a significant return because it's somebody else who's, for the most part, taking the casualties and for the most part, you know, having to, to bear the brunt of the fighting. The problem with that is that it very often leads to too little investment. And then when there is suddenly a realization that you need to pour more in, it sort of comes in without a particularly well-formulated plan. And then once they get themselves very heavily involved trying to fix the problems that they should have sort of planned to begin with, we start seeing policy kind of slur all over the place between different objectives, whether that's rushing around to try and prop up state institutions that support the military, trying to improve military effectiveness, trying to counter other proxy actors that have suddenly entered the space. And so what we quickly find is that a capability which, or a campaign, which was conceived of as a de-risking exercise rather than deploying a state's own military forces in large numbers, entangles the state in all sorts of complex issues that were foreseeable, but were usually dismissed. And so I think I think that's the biggest risk with this is that you get involved in things that you didn't expect. And we need a bit of a change in mindset to realizing that this is a fairly long term activity. It is cheaper than deploying conventional forces, but that doesn't mean that it you know, you can have an effect for free. Uh, there is a minimum scale at which it's effective. And you need to, I think, accept that there will be downsides to deploying this sort of technique, which I don't think necessarily can be mitigated. I think there's a fairly stark policy choice in a lot of cases between acknowledging that there are going to be some downsides and bad outcomes to the policy, but it then becomes a question as to whether that is offset by whether or not the policy can achieve what the states want to achieve. So I think, I think that's probably the biggest risk is that it's, it's perceived to be risk-free at the outset. Yeah, I love that last point. I mean, I think that's exactly the point. It's perceived to be risk-free. And, and sometimes that perception includes what the real costs and, and benefits or what the, the real balance should be in some of these policy questions. In most countries where Western states or other international interveners want to address their security interests, their number one partner is still going to be the state. They pre- states prefer to work through other states. It's easier you already have a standing military, it, it you know, works better in terms of funding, it raises less legal issues, everything. But in many of the countries where Western states have sought to intervene, let's say in the last two decades, let's take across the Middle East, the state doesn't have full control or there's other problems with that. So, you know, it's state after state from Yemen to Syria to Libya, non-state or let's say sub-state actors, so like regional forces, behave in a more state-like way than the state. They control actual territory. They are the strongest forces on the ground to defend against terrorist insurgent threats. They may provide services or control the administration of the state. So this is sort of the setup that has led to kind of, I think, the dilemma we're talking about in terms of engaging with a lot of non-state or quasi-state or sub-state actors, is that in many of the places where the U.S. or other Western states want to engage, the best or only partner on the ground to face an exigent security threat may be a force that that looks sort of like a militia or looks like a a regional force or it has doesn't have the full trappings of the state in some way. And so what are the risks that come with engaging with these 
types to force it. First, we should say, as Jack said, no engagement is risk-free. If you work with other state partners, they may have different interests. They may have their own problems in terms of corruption, accountability, abuses, any number of things. But there's ways that when you come to dealing with non-state actors, particularly those that sort of are more irregular, maybe they don't have tight military hierarchy or discipline or command and control, or maybe they are, they've sprung up and become powerful non-state forces specifically because of conflict animosities or other tensions in the region. So in these cases, they may present other political risks. So there's ways that dealing with all of these different non-state and sub-state actors may present particular or higher risk. You know, one, of course, is the risk that if you've got, you know, classic problem of militias, they're going to behave in an unruly way. There's a long history of these forces being used as sort of death squads, carrying out abuses, rising to sort of torture, ethnic cleansing. So obviously, you don't want to be involved or enabling that. There's also a number of security risks that could come with partnering with these forces. So recently, when the U.S. was looking for partner forces in Syria, one of the main concerns was, we don't really know anything about these guys. And it's a really messy stew of all of these different forces, many of which have jihadi affiliations. How do we know they won't pass U.S. weapons on to some of these terrorist forces? How do they know, you know, if we put U.S. trainers on the ground or special forces in a limited fashion, how do we know they wouldn't attack them themselves? Another classic case of partnership in the 1980s, the U.S. provided weapons and other support to Afghan Mujahideen to counter the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Later, some of spinoffs of those groups emerged to become Al-Qaeda. So those are the sort of security fears, the idea that you support these forces and then they go rogue. And then there's a host of other sort of downstream consequences or risks. So in a lot of these countries, a Western state is going in there because they probably also want to support other goals. They want to support governance. They want to support state building and institutions. They want to improve the rule of law. In many cases where other non-state groups have been supported or some of these militias, because they may compete with state control, it can sort of undermine these other larger state building goals. Or at a local level, these actors may sort of capture the local space and crowd out other community actors and, and impede rule of law or governance. So sometimes by advancing this one goal, you can have some of these other risks and consequences. Thanks, that's really interesting. And Jack, I want to jump into a specific issue that you looked at both in War by Others Means and in the comments you just made, where you talk about that policymakers need to be aware of the compromises of these types of activities, that there's a risk between prioritising short-term capacity building versus institutional reform. I wonder if you can briefly describe some of the risks of getting this wrong. So I think we've uh, succumbed to a collective fallacy in Western policymaking, which is the belief that if you get all of the experts into the room from across government, you get the financial experts, you get the development people, you get the military, you get intelligence people all into the room, that they will somehow craft this beautiful and perfect process of engagement that will lead to fellow state emerging from darkness with perfect institutions. Everything will rise in a level manner and, you know, glory shall come. And it never works like that. I think that the problem is, is that actually a lot of those objectives are in conflict or in tension. Um, If you are a country that is being attacked by a force like Daesh or Islamic State, and you've just lost 40% of your territory, then you really are not going to prioritize support for humanitarian and access to do economic development in the South. You have bigger problems as the Iraqi government. And so Diffid and others can come in and promise the world and they can try and engage and they just won't get traction. The problem, as far as your partner is concerned, is defeating the invasion 
and therefore they need to be more militarily effective. And until you stabilize the position and kind of have that in place, everything else is basically wasting time. But you also have to accept that if you suddenly massively increase the capability of a military in a country where other institutions are weak, then you will get you will get several kind of problems. Firstly, warlordism, where military commanders are the most functional institution in an area, and therefore they suddenly become the ones who can provide services and security and everything else and conduct policing. And all of a sudden, they are massively powerful individuals who dwarf the rest of government and don't necessarily need to follow civilian control. And that can have all sorts of negative flow on effects. So I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we can prevent that from happening in a lot of these cases. Conversely, if you do go in and massively increase the military in an environment where you're trying to improve the general level of governance and there isn't an overwhelming security threat, then you risk creating security threats because the military that you've trained will go and apply military solutions to whatever problems in place. When actually you want to maybe have much better staff training and you know a level of pay management and sort of bureaucracy supporting the military, but you also want those same pay systems to support the wider civil service and you want the country to prioritize development, in which case, actually, you shouldn't be measuring military effectiveness as whether or not your policy is succeeding, because that's completely secondary to the requirement. And it can have negative consequences, you know, are adverse to the policy aims that you have. So I think, firstly, we need to get away from the idea that there's a perfect harmonized solution, and it's all about a whole all of government approach or fusion or whatever. And secondly, we need to acknowledge the downsides of our policy, acknowledge that some of these things have to be sequenced, and that we need to prioritize our interests and our objectives in a sequence, depending on the situation. And sometimes that means development organizations will lead that effort. And sometimes it means that they're going to have to come in behind the military because security concerns will trump whatever else you try and put in place. And, you know, I've spent plenty of time with development folks on the ground desperately trying to get access when they are having to work extremely hard to get any meetings because of the threats to them personally and the environment. And they end up, you know, setting up some very well-intentioned program that's working with five, 15 people or whatever as a pilot. And you kind of look at this in a whole society that's collapsing around them and go, what are you doing? You know, that's just not going to lead to an outcome because you can't do it at the scale that's necessary. So I don't think it's the case that you have to take a long-term view, you have to take a short-term view. I think it's context-specific, but I think there needs to be a level of honesty that not everyone is as important as everyone else at a given time. I'm also interested in how the prioritization of objectives fits in with our assessment of what the most important issues are at present point in time. I think we prioritise, say, counter-terrorism when the drivers of conflict may be slightly different. I wonder how that fits in with this honest conversation around what needs to be prioritised and when. Yeah, so so in Mali, counter-terrorism was, I think, utterly secondary to the actual problems that people were facing. Food security, economic stagnation, human security issues would have, if you'd got those right, and there was a window of opportunity up until about 2015, 2016, where that could have been prioritized, would have essentially denied most of the armed groups access to recruits because those people would have had livelihoods. You know, the reason why the insurgency spread and flared in 2015 and has now deteriorated since has largely been a reflection, I think, of a very disjointed counterterrorism-led campaign 
being completely out of kilter with the prioritization of development. And so you can make the security situation worse if you apply the wrong solution. And in lots of places we have. But as I say, in Iraq, I used to have all of these people coming up to me because I spent some time with the Hashd al-Shabi, the PMF, saying, what do we do about the PMF? You know, they're gaining all this political control. And it's like, yeah, because they're about a third of the Iraqi military and you can't pull those troops out of the line. And so they're going to have a lot of influence. They're at war. You can't change that. And you can't tell the Iraqis that all of these volunteers are evil or bad, or you're not going to convince them of that. So there was a lot of wasted work pursuing the wrong ends at the wrong time. Thank you, Jack. And also thank you for mentioning the Mali case. I completely agree with you. Erika, so we see that the West is quite fearful of these types of relationships. For example, you've argued against calling the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq, proxies of Iran, and instead found a convergence of interests better capturing this relationship. I would like to ask you why you think that is and what the implications of this are. So just a bit of background for those who maybe aren't as familiar with the Hashtashabi or the Popular Mobilization Force. When ISIL attacked in 2014, a lot of what were formerly sort of shadowy militias, like Shia partisan militias, many of whom had been started or received substantial support from Iran's Quds Force, were among the first to kind of regroup and respond to ISIL's attack. They also managed to get themselves sanctioned by the most prominent Iraqi Shia cleric and to get government baptization. So they formed this what they called the Popular Mobilization Force, and started accruing numbers, ultimately getting about 120,000 forces on salary. And as they proved their mettle or gained in terms of popularity and forces, they also started to kind of earn their own audit. So they controlled substantial territory. When the 2018 Iraq elections came through, they ran their own parties. The two leading vote getters coming out of Iraq's 2018 elections were contingents of this popular mobilization force. So they're now a substantial force, but the strongest forces within them have always had these longstanding ties with Iran. Some of them still act like Iranian proxies. So the U.S. has always sort of viewed them as an extension of Iran's larger regional proxy strategy. It has mistrusted these forces from the get-go. And in the last couple of years, it sort of ratcheted up the pressure, trying to get Iraq's government to demobilize them or put them under greater restraints. It's placed a lot of economic sanctions on a lot of the PMF or Hashid leaders. It's even engaged in tit-for-tat or reactive military strikes. So when there are strikes that happen or threats against U.S. bases or personnel in Iraq, it's responded by attacking some of these PMF bases and locations in both Iraq and Syria, largely in a reactive phase, but some of them have had quite significant effects. So the targeting of Iran's Quds Force leader, Qasem Soleimani, took out the head of the Popular Mobilization Force in the same strike. So there's been significant tit-for-tat and tension surrounding a Popular Mobilization Force, largely because the U.S. views them as a proxy of Iran. I don't dispute that the PMF has Iranian ties and linkages quite strongly. The groups that dominate it are clearly, clearly anti-U.S. and would like to see the U.S. interests and, and presence in Iraq be diminished. That is 100% true. And some of these groups are hard to categorize as anything but proxies. But it is a very heterogeneous and mixed group. And a lot of them may have ties to Iran, but also have their substantially their own domestic interests, their own domestic constituencies, their own domestic strength. And even if they have that influence and ties, a lot of times what is driving their ambitions, their actions, their threats, their rise to power is their own interest and decision. So the risk is if U.S. only sees them through this proxy lens 
and interprets any given rocket attack or any advancement in power as a threat or a signal coming from Iran, it risks misinterpreting the threat. And what that does is it not only could lead to an escalation in terms of conflict, lead to a lot more of these tit-for-tat attacks, but it could mean that the U.S. isn't maybe approaching some of the challenges in the way it needs to. So if the primary threat from these forces is actually a political one, because they're major vote winners, they have a domestic constituency, they have significant power, they are here for decades. They are a generational challenge. So if you only respond to them as a sort of military proxy of Iran, as a militia group that could sort of be swatted by a rocket, do you miss a larger opportunity to shape the political in-state regarding these groups and U.S. interests in Iran? I might just add to that, that the prominence of the label PMF reflects the state centrism that we have in these engagements. You know, the PMF was the institution that brought about 40 militia groups together. And because that had a connection to the Iraqi government and in military command structure, we felt really comfortable having a policy towards the PMF. But from the kind of structure of those groups, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, Tlaib Hezbollah, I think, can very accurately be described as an Iranian proxy because they virtually describe themselves that way. The Badr organization can't. It's playing its own game. It's been a long-term Iraqi political faction with close links with Iran. And then there are plenty of other groups like Soraya al-Salam, which is very independent, sometimes works with the Iranians, sometimes goes very strongly against them. And then you have the Shrine militias in there as well, which have been a primary counterweight to Iranian influence in Iraq. And when we've got that wrong, as after the rocket attack on one of our bases in March, the US bombed a series of targets, but one of them was a infrastructure project of the shrines in Karbala that was under the shrine militias. And I know the building well, because I was with one of those militias drinking tea in the building they hit a year and a half earlier. And the damage that that does to the perception of the US in Iraq, if you're trying to convince the Iraqis that the US should stay and have a relationship, that's huge. And I think that myopic sense that this is the PMF, we can group them together. And that works for us because they're attached to the state is a key example of how we fail to recognize the complexity of these organizations and the need to look at them and how they define themselves in their own terms, rather than just applying external labels. And I also wonder as well, Jack, you mentioned in your own book that the alignment of wills between a country like the UK and its partners is really important. I wonder why that is and how we can achieve it. So I think how you achieve it is largely by going and building personal relationships. And you need individuals who have trust with the command structure on the other side who can sit down and have honest and frank conversations with them about what you're trying to achieve. They can talk about whether they're trying to achieve and you can thrash out joint planning. Almost all of the successful cases that I've seen have been built on interpersonal relationships between officers and the personnel of the partner force. And those need to be sustained. So you can't have trust handed over between appointments as though your professional military is just rolling through and expect those relationships to survive. It's very much a personal investment. And so you need those people to be engaged with the country long term. In terms of why it matters, at a very basic level, you can't make someone do something they don't want to do. Compelling someone or coercing them to do something makes them a very unwilling and therefore largely ineffective partner. If you want them to risk their lives rather than just take your money and kind of do it very half-heartedly, if you want them to genuinely try and see it through, then they need to believe that it's in their interests and they need to believe that it's a worthwhile cause. And you can't generate those beliefs from nothing, right? So there has to be an alignment of interests. Otherwise, 
you will have a paper force, one that has a lot of people on the payroll, maybe has some weapons, but when the shooting starts, it will break up. And I can go through case study after case study after case study of these kind of paper battalions that get raised where everyone from the local area gets paid a pittance to sort of join formations, thrown into contact and disintegrates almost immediately, whether that's in Russia or Iran or Afghanistan. Training doesn't get you around that problem either. Ultimately, a force is dependent upon its will to fight. And its will to fight is dependent upon the partner believing that the risks it's taking, the mission it's trying to accomplish is worthwhile. So if there isn't that alignment, then you are bashing your head against a brick wall. You're never going to get anywhere. To add to what Jack said, I think what he's also getting at is an important trend that a lot of observers bring up in this area, which is that where the US or other Western states engage in these partnerships, they tend to be very tactical, very transactional, very short term. There's an immediate security interest that is identified, for example, countering the Islamic State, and we're willing to support whoever can immediately do that for that period of time. But for the guys on the ground, that doesn't, you know, you're only going to get paid for the next few months until ISIL is gone. And so this sort of short-term transactional approach short circuits the ability to develop meaningful ties or relationships or interests that would allow for a degree of control. I would argue that it increases the risks in the long term because you you know you don't have an ability to actually shape behavior or to fully engage with the context. A really good example of that when it comes to Islamic State is Kurdish forces. So if we look at Kurdish forces in Iraq, we went to them first because we had a close relationship with them. They mobilized and they fought and took casualties and risked their lives to reclaim the bits of Kurdish territory and a couple of extra bits of territory that they thought should be Kurdish. But the moment they had those, they went static, they dug in, and they basically contributed nothing to the rest of the campaign in terms of actually retaking ground. And so all of that investment in terms of training and resource was, I won't say wasted, because being able to deny a large part of northern Iraq to ISIS was valuable, but they worked with us until they had achieved their interests, and then they stopped. And everything we put in after that was essentially cosmetic. And then generated some problems down the line in terms of empowering them to fight Baghdad. So, you know, you really have to look at what is the limit of what they want to do and does that align with my interests? Because if you're if you're not being honest with yourself about that, then you will hit a point where your policies start to diverge and you don't want to be caught out by that. Yeah, we're seeing this a lot. I mean, I'm jumping in again on the on the Sahel, but this issue of alignment of will is extremely important now in this inverted commas new conflict. Perhaps both of you could tell us a bit more about where you see the future of this going. And also you have highlighted a lot of the risks and the challenges. Perhaps you could give us a few suggestions on how these types of operations could be done better. Right. So just also feeding off of the last comment, I think that the other point to highlight from what Jack was saying as well is the degree to which you actually get a degree of management of these risks or a sounder policy comes from sort of personal engagement. So a lot of what I've been looking at are the ways that Western states try to mitigate some of the risks, whether that's the risks of human rights abuses, the risks of these forces going rogue or security or or other downstream threats. And a lot of times what we will try and do or Western states will try and use training or capacity building, you know, teach them about the laws of war, or they will do things like vetting. So we'll run a background check on everyone and take their biometric data. But ultimately, we don't have a lot of information about these forces. So a lot of these more institutional ways of trying to constrain risk 
end up being short-circuited. We just don't know enough for them to be effective. And because we have this very short-term engagement, we don't sort of have the follow-through. In many cases, in addition, we don't have the enforcement to make them work. So we can say we don't want you to engage in human rights abuses, or we don't want you to take this territory because it would offend our regional neighbor. But because they know we're only going to be around for a few months and we have no other options, there's actually no way to enforce those interests. So I would say rather than this trend that we're seeing of trying to almost regulate these irregular actors or or say, well, we can check the box and make sure that there's reporting and there's monitoring and there's training and there's vetting, that there needs to be much more of a a focus on the basics. So you need to look at what are their actually interests. If you can't change these partners in the short term, will they actually accomplish what you need them to? Do they do so without exposing substantially other risks, both in the immediate situation, but also the sort of downstream future risks? And if they don't, perhaps the answer is not to go that route rather than to say, well, pretend that we can mitigate them or pretend that we can change the partner because we we can't do so. I'll just give one anecdote. I was interviewing U.S. officials who were trying to develop a partnership in 2014 and 2015 to counter the Islamic State in Syria, and they were trying to work with Turkey to find these forces. And Turkey kept promising to find them, but it kept looking for things that looked like Islamic proxies of Turkey and The U.S. had no interest in supporting Islamic groups, much less those that were out to advance the interest of Turkey. And it also had all these other regulations to ensure that they wouldn't commit human rights abuses, which was justified, and that they wouldn't pass weapons on. And in the end, they found no forces ever materialized. They started to call them the unicorn forces. Um, because the idea that you would find law-abiding, competent, secular forces who were willing to fight the Islamic State and who both the U.S. and Turkey agreed on did not exist. So in those cases, do you, do you try to chase after these unicorn forces or do you accept the reality of the situation? And- yeah, if you, if you want a textbook example of how not to do this, U.S. policy in Syria is sort of the, the case study to look at. But I, I think in terms of where this is going, I think the grammar has fundamentally changed from about 2011 onwards. And that is that the regulatory approach, which has dominated Western thinking on this for the last 30 years, has been enabled by a unipolar world order where there is very little competition for these relationships. If there is, it's pretty soft. And I think that's about to change. I think we're getting into a position now where in the Gulf, China, and in a lot of Africa, China is an increasing broker. And in Central Asia, Russia is expanding its security relationships across Africa and is trying to build new ones in the Middle East and has demonstrated an ability to conduct expeditionary support operations and supportive proxies. And as we return to an era of what you know, governments are calling great power competition, that has two impl- implications. Firstly, someone is bidding against you which means that a lot of our ticks box exercises are just not going to be competitive. And secondly, we are going to have to be a lot more ruthless in terms of who we support and whether they actually advance our interests or not. And so I think, firstly, we're probably going to see a, a cutting back of a lot of the red tape around this stuff, which is a bad thing in the sense that I think that does mean support will go to groups that will conduct some unpleasant activity. But if that means that we become much more discerning in the personalities and the relationships and long-term engagement with groups, 
then you can also potentially see that leading to some much more effective methodologies. So, you know, it's not necessarily a terrible thing. But the other aspect of this is that there are more actors at play, and therefore that has a destabilizing effect because a lot of the power to compel that the patron has had is being diminished by the fact that there are multiple brokers. And so so groups on the ground now can play patrons off against each other. So I think we're moving into a much more competitive dynamic. I think it's going to become more prevalent. It's also going to become more prevalent because as we move towards competition and the need to maintain larger conventional forces against one another, you want to try and reduce your commitments to out-of-area operations. And so insofar as this is cheaper than deploying large conventional forces, it's also going to be a strategy which is seen quite favorably by Western governments as well as others. We maybe need to unpick what our objectives are. If we support actors that do terrible things in areas where we admit there might have been a misprioritization of objectives and potentially cause more conflict in the places that we are, then that will have to fit into how we prioritize these relationships and whether it is within our interest to work with unsavory partners. Yeah, absolutely. And there are plenty of cases where I think the answer should just be no. We're not we're not going to try and intervene and we're not going to try and support people. There is a a fallacy sometimes that we have to do something. And in some cases that's true. But in others, actually just saying we're gonna we're not gonna get involved in this one is very much the right decision, both ethically and in practical political terms. Thank you to Erica and Jack. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. As you may now know, the Oxford Research Group is closing soon. And this podcast, as well as the rest of the Remote Warfare Programme, will be moving to Safer World, under the new name of the Security Policy Change Programme. However, you can still catch all previous episodes of the podcast on the Oxford Research Group website or wherever you get your podcasts.